Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly. Which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. We are actuaries. In a world filled with unpredictability, we use our math skills to navigate uncertainty. Actuaries make a difference in people's lives across industries and the world. Actuaries have the freedom to work anywhere. And according to U.S. News & World Report, we're the 25th top-paying career. Make an impact as a fact-seeker and a truth-teller. Use your math skills for good as an actuary. The world needs you. At Popular Science, we report and write dozens of science and tech stories every week. And while a lot of the fun facts we stumble across make it into our articles, there are lots of other weird facts that we just keep around the office. So we figured, why not share those with you? Welcome to The Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week from the editors of Popular Science. I'm Rachel Feltman. I'm Eleanor Cummins. I'm Sophie Bushwick. So in case you weren't with us last week, we have a really cool announcement, which is that Weirdest Thing is going to be performed live at Caveat in New York City on Friday, September 14th at 6.30 p.m. You can already get tickets online and find more info on our Facebook and Twitter. And it's going to be super fun. We're going to have audience participation, games, prizes, uncensored, unedited, weird facts. We might make Billy play the theme song on a toy piano. Who knows what'll happen? Um, anyway, we really hope you'll join us because it would be super weird to do it without you. So on the weirdest thing I learned this week, we start by each offering a little tease of some kind of factoid or story that we picked up while reporting, reading, writing, answering angry emails, what have you. And then we decide what we just absolutely have to hear more about first. Once we've all had time to spin our little science yarns, we reconvene and vote on what the weirdest thing we learned this week actually was. And of course, you can vote for your own favorite weirdest thing on Twitter or Facebook. So, Sophie, since it's your first time on Weirdest Thing. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> We're so excited to have you. And why don't you give us your tease? My tease is that in the late 1700s, early 1800s, there was something known as laughing gas parties. Ooh. Cool. Sign me up. <laughs> I shouldn't say that yet. Who knows what's coming? I mean, to be fair, I think people also had laughing gas parties in more recent times. <laughs> but this is the this is the now they're called whippets. <laughs> Eleanor, what's your tease? My tease is flutes of all kinds, some made of human bones. <laughs> Weird. That's the description of my album on iTunes. Um, okay, my tease 
is that once there was a man who really wanted us all to ride zebras. It's beautiful. Yeah. I want laughing gas. Yeah, let's start with laughing gas. Oh boy, I thought you would never ask. My story starts with Humphrey Davy. He is born in Cornwall in the late 1700s, and he's, at the time, this was a very remote area, and when he was younger, he was sort of rebellious and adventurous, but um, when his father died, when he was about 16, he started getting a little more serious. He got really into poetry and chemistry, as you do. (laughs) Two dark paths. (laughs) About this time, it was a really exciting time for science. People were like, hey, maybe the world isn't made up of four elements. It's actually, there's other stuff going on. (laughs) There was a lot of new ideas around. This was about when the chemist Lavoisier was active before he, you know, died in the French Revolution. So great time to get into chemistry. And um, one of the people that Davy befriended around this time was Gregory Watt, son of James Watt, the guy who invented the Watt steam engine and also the horsepower. And they would, you know, hang out and gather minerals and get really drunk together. (laughs) You know, good good times. And Gregory wrote his father about uh, this this brilliant young man. And his father told a guy named Thomas Beddoes, who's um, a doctor and uh, he was... Beddoes at the time was in his 30s, and Davy was about 20, but they started corresponding, and Davy would share some of his really forward-thinking ideas. Like, people knew that plants absorbed carbon dioxide and produced oxygen, and humans would, you know, take in oxygen and produce carbon dioxide, but Davy sort of propounded the idea that this created an equilibrium, which Mm -hmm. was the first time someone described the carbon cycle. So he's clearly really forward-thinking and brilliant, and Beddoes hires him to run his pneumatic institute. So Beddoes wanted to um, have this institute where he would use inhalable treatments for diseases like tuberculosis. So the idea was he would give free treatment to people who needed it, and also he'd get to try out, like, can inhaling gases help you? Makes sense. Beddoes had asthma, and Mm -hmm. so it sort of makes sense that he'd be interested in this line of research. So Davey takes the job and he starts, you know, administering gas to people and he realizes really quickly that there's not, this isn't based on actual experiments or trials. Like they would give these treatments to people with TB, but they'd also give it to people with venereal disease and they would sell like do-it-yourself inhaling kits to rich people so they could (laughs) breathe gas at home. So Davey is like, I need to do research on this. So in 1799, he sets up these gas inhaling experiments, and his first subject is himself. So (laughs) this was not great. He he started getting fainting fits. He'd get nausea. He almost died once from inhaling carbon monoxide. He would burn his throat. Davy. Davy. Oh, Davy. In some ways, he was doing breakthroughs. Like, he would be measuring his own lung capacity. Mm-hmm. He was making all this equipment so he could measure the amount that people were inhaling and exhaling. When it really got interesting was when he decided that the gas that had the best safety record was nitrous oxide, or N2O, which we know better today as laughing gas. He would make this gas by heating crystals of ammonium nitrate. He collects the gas in this bag made out of oiled silk. And he um, passes it through water to remove impurities, and then there would be a mouthpiece he could use to inhale it. And he took these detailed lab notes on his own experience as he was doing it. He'd have people taking his pulse, and he'd be writing down his own impressions. And it very quickly became clear that Davy just 
loved laughing gas. Uh oh. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So he he says this gas has raised my pulse, made me dance about the laboratory as a madman, and has kept my spirits in a glow ever since. This is why they say don't get high on your own supply. <laughs> yeah. He would also he also because remember he's a poet, so of course he decides I'm going to have some nitrous oxide and then write a poem about oh, it. Oh no. So he did. And it's really interesting because a lot of it is just him describing his physical symptoms. So he'd say Yet is my cheek with rosy blushes warm, yet are my eyes with sparkling luster filled, yet is my mouth replete with murmuring sound, yet are my limbs with inward transport thrilled. It's for Shakespearean. That's yeah. great. He actually, he, he wrote some decent poetry, but this isn't one of them. <laughs> and he starts, at, at one point he was breathing gas up to three or four times a day. Sometimes when he's at home alone, sometimes he'd like go for a walk and then he'd you know come home and have a session with the gas. Um, and the really frustrating thing, though, is that he, he recognized that if you breathe enough gas, you could lose consciousness and then be brought back to um, awareness very quickly. But he didn't make the connection that you could use this during surgery. Mm. And it wasn't until 1844 that laughing gas was actually used as an anesthetic in surgery. So at the time, people were just like getting cut open with no painkillers. Right. And it was really miserable. So it's really annoying that he didn't <laughs> make that connection earlier. Anyway, I said there would be parties, so let's get to the parties. <laughs> Other than the party of one that was just Davy <laughs> dancing around the lab. <laughs> exactly. He did, had another breakthrough. He pioneered the blind experimental method. So he would test laughing gas on people, but he wouldn't tell them whether it was gas or regular air, mm-hmm. and he wouldn't tell them the concentration of the gas they were inhaling. So he decided to start with his friends and the people who came into the clinic for free treatment. This is actually where he first ran into trouble because some of the people he gives this gas to are women. Oh, my God. It's very, clutch your pearls, please, because there's, there's rumors that this, this reduces their inhibitions, this mm. makes them hysterical. Uh-oh. Yeah, and this is going to lead to trouble angles. later on. <laughs> But some of the people he gives it to are uh, are other poets. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the poet Robert Southey was the um, he would go on to become poet laureate, and he was friends with like Wordsworth and and that group. And he he said such a gas had Davy discovered the gaseous oxide. It has made me laugh and tingle <laughs> in every toe and fingertip. Davy has actually invented a new pleasure for which language has no name. I am going for more this evening. It makes one strong and happy, so gloriously happy. They are so addicted. I <laughs> love it. Also, just like, was was it so depressing to be a Victorian that... This isn't even yes. Victorian. These these people, this is like Regency era. This oh, is, yeah, like late right, 1700s, yeah. early 1800s. It's like a really exciting time for science, but also for science and the arts together. So there's a reason that there's this chemist being buddy-buddy with all these poets. There was like this huge overlap. You know, you'd go to a party and you'd have like a painter and a poet and a couple scientific uh, scientists and, you know, a doctor all sitting at the table together talking about ideas. But I think that it just wasn't, other than alcohol and opium, which was not widely used, you know, uh, there wasn't a lot of I'm just imagining, stuff. like, Fitzwilliam Darcy on Laughing Gas. <laughs> <laughs> that would have been a different book. That would be an amazing book. Why hasn't anyone written Pride and Prejudice and Laughing Gas? <laughs> During this time, Davy is also testing it on animals. He's also trying things like um, having wine and then laughing gas oh, and great. see how that changes. <laughs> Apparently, it reduced his hangover the next day. Oh. Yeah. Um, And he also tried a portable gas chamber. So he would, you know, go into this gas chamber and just, like, 
be completely surrounded by gas. And he said, the sensations were superior to any I ever experienced, inconceivably pleasurable. I seemed to be a sublime being, newly created and superior to other mortals. I was indignant at what they said of me and stalked majestically out of the laboratory <laughs> to inform Dr. Kinglake privately that nothing existed but thoughts. <laughs> Oh, no. <laughs> How did that go over? I don't know. I think Dr. Kinglake was used to him being, like, to his being, to this guy being super high all the go time. Go back to your laughing gas box. <laughs> wow. Anyway, so yeah, there's, the laughing gas is an amazing thing, and all the people who took it in, like, the early 1800s were just having a ball. But, like I said, there, I said there'd be trouble down the line. So Davey, again, he's been, he's been really pretty rigorous with his method despite the fact that he's just taking a ton of laughing gas so he publishes a book about his findings and the reaction was mixed so in the popular <laughs> press he was really attacked if you look up laughing gas political cartoons you'll see some drawings from the time of people's I imagined version of what these parties were and it's really they're really disturbing is it like the reefer madness of the regency era it's basically the reefer madness <laughs> of the regency yeah it is i mean because remember he's giving it to women so people mm. implied that there was this sexual debauchery oh going God, on it was literally the reefer madness of the regency era yeah Amazing. someone spread a rumor about this woman who got pregnant under the influence of the gas and yeah it was it was <laughs> not great um but that didn't really end up damaging Davy's career uh, so he went on to isolate, for the first time, elements such as potassium, calcium, strontium, barium, magnesium, and boron. And he, he, you know, he used electricity. He invented this uh, much safer mining lamp called the Davy Lamp. Mm -hmm. And he also helped, um, he, he had as an assistant Michael Faraday, who oh. was, went on to become a famous physicist. Wow, that's amazing. Imagine what he would have done without the drugs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. can, can laughing gas, in the quantities in which he was using it, damage you in any way? Like Yes. Okay. So at the time he's doing the experiments, other chemists were actually classifying it as a toxic okay. gas. And you need a certain amount of oxygen, and anything that's going to deprive you of oxygen is it, it can mess with you. And so, like, in, in more modern era, people, you know, have... have used laughing gas recreationally as well as, you know, in the dentist's office. And that can definitely, if you use it irresponsibly, it can be dangerous. Right. Mm. Look, like if you if you were to say, you know, build your own portable gas chamber. And, <laughs> but also the fact that he was making it by heating these crystals, um, they, there was the potential for explosions if he let the reaction right. kind of get out of control. So he he was lucky in some ways, but also Davey was, he was pretty brilliant. He was... You know, he he went on to make some really cool discoveries. So, despite the fact that he loved drugs, did he, he ever kick the habit, or did it just <laughs> was it like to, into his coffin? He, no, I think that you know the whole doing laugh, inhaling laughing gas three to four times a day. He didn't do that for like all of his life. Okay, you know, um, sometimes even during this period when he was experimenting really heavily with it, he would sometimes you know only do it a couple times a week. How as, responsible? Okay, well we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with some more weird facts. Okay, pals, you love the Weirdest Thing I Learned This Week podcast, and now you can also love it as a Facebook group. Share your strangest facts and read all about the offbeat and outlandish findings of other science lovers. We'll also be publishing some of the bonus info and ramblings that didn't make it into the final cut of the podcast. Just search for The Weirdest Thing on Facebook. 
And we're back, and now we're going to go to uh, Bone Flutes with Eleanor. Hello. I was recently writing a story about sound design when it comes to, like, you know, products like our devices and gadgets um, and how much work goes into, you know, every, like, bing and click and clack. And it got me kind of started on, like, the question of, like, the oldest instrument. Um, Mm. And it was a very interesting rabbit hole to fall down. Um, So the oldest instruments are all flutes, which I find really interesting. Um, And they date back, uh, the confirmed ones date back to about 43,000 years ago. They've all been um, mainly identified in Germany, um, which is like a method that archaeologists have used to sort of um, prove like human habitation in that Mm. area and sort of, um, you Mm. know, track our migration around the globe. Um, And so they've come in all different kinds of materials. Um, There are some that are made of bird bone, some made of mammoth ivory, Um, one that has a special place in my heart um, that is contested um, is made of cave bear bone. Um, vulture wings, you know, however you could get it. And I think it sort of makes sense that these are some of the earliest instruments. Um, you know, the idea that, like, if you, like, suck the marrow out of a bone and you have, like, a little hollow, you know, mm-hmm. tool and you can kind of carve holes into it, you've got an instrument pretty pretty quickly. Yeah. And um, also you have a snack. <laughs> perfect. A win-win. Um, and so, uh, you know, I was just really excited to, to kind of find out about that history. But then I was like what's the weirdest instrument, you know, around? (laughs) Um, There is also um, a a case, I found at least one case, where, you know, human femurs are part of uh, ritual musical instrumentation. Um, So I brought a uh, photo of a kangling, which is a Tibetan trump. It's it's really made out of a femur. Wow, that is just a whole dang femur. Yeah, there's really nothing. It's exactly what you... They didn't even, like, make it... Wow, yeah. It's just a femur, like you have seen on, you know, your your own X-rays, uh, wherever you're wherever you're looking at bones. It's just that with some jewels, um, you know, added to it, and then obviously, uh, you know, able you can play it. It's used in rituals um, and funerals, um, and so the idea is that you can use really anyone's uh, femur, but that you would prefer, obviously, the femur of a criminal. Um, or the person, or someone who maybe died in a very violent way, or someone who is a respected teacher. Which reminds me of our medical cannibalism Absolutely. Uh, episode. You always want to I'm just here to talk about death. bones. <laughs> them dry bones. Um, so, yeah. So, they were used in, in this particular ritual. I'm not really sure how to pronounce it, um, but like a chod ritual. Um, which is where you are trying to kind of communicate your fearlessness to um, the spirit world. Um, and so, obviously, I, I, there is nothing more fearless than taking the femur of a criminal and putting it to your lips and playing a tune. <laughs> so I think it really it gets the job done. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, yeah. Yeah, I was, I've just been kind of like looking into the history of music, and it's really interesting to think about the theories of, of how these instruments sort of evolved. Um, there's definitely a debate over what qualifies um, as an actual Mm -hmm. instrument, right? When we're looking Mm -hmm. at stuff from 43,000 years ago, there's a lot of disagreement about, like, what is actually intentionally made, um, you know, into a flute. Right. So, like I was saying, there's one that's made out of cave bear bone um, that is, it dates to roughly the same period we're talking about, um, you know, like 40,000 years ago. It's called the Divja Babe Flute, which is such a good name. 
and they have you know been able to actually reconstruct it and you can listen to the music and you guys it is so spooky I was telling um, our video producer Tom about how like I was listening to this and I just had to tell somebody about how like freaked out I was and he was like that's exactly how you like bring an ancient curse like on your family is like listening to a reconstructed prehistoric flute so that is really contested though because um, they uh, are, are sort of like unsure if the holes are, you know, were carved intentionally mm-hmm. or if they are something that can, like, maybe happen from gnawing, um, you know, on a bone. And similarly, it's like, are flutes really the first instrument we were using, the first way that we were sort of making music, or is it just something that has, you know, enough of an evidence of human intervention that we can sort of tie them, you know, historically right. to this process? Have they found any, like, wooden instruments? Um, not really, to, not from this period. Um, and... You would think it would probably be because they wouldn't have survived. Right, because, like, that would make sense to me that they'd made something. I mean, I mean, bone is great and all, but I feel like wood is pretty easy to carve. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, and it's like, I mean, if we were, you know, sort of like, like, when I think about what would be the first instrument, I can definitely see, like I said, like, you know, carving um, something out of a hollow bone to, to you know, like, play. Um, but I, I would just, like, imagine that, like, you know, drums and keeping mm-hmm. a beat was really foundational. Yeah. But, like, you know, in that kind of a case, if we found sticks near rocks, <laughs> we would never be like, oh, this is an instrument. Um, and, you know, the the sort of drums that we do have um, from, you know, the historical record, like, are also often made out of, like, you know, like, stretching animal, um, mm-hmm. like, skin and organs, like, over a kind of, like, bowl, right, to get that um, sensation and, and whether or not those would survive, you know, for very long is an interesting kind of question. Mm-hmm. There's like a lot of debate um, over this. Uh, one question that people have is about, you know, how long humans have been like singing for since mm. that's sort of the most innate instrument, right, is our voice. Right. Um, and so humans, our vocal range um, apparently crystallized about 530,000 years ago, which is interesting to think that this has been more or less <laughs> what it's been like. Um, but it's obviously unclear um, when singing um, really begins. We've noticed that um, at least a few primates seem to sort of exhibit um, like singing uh, behavior, um, lemurs, targiers, um, uh, and gibbons among them. Um, and some people have noticed that um, these animals all are like monogamous maters. So mm-hmm. uh, there's a scientific theory um, that maybe sort of singing emerges from our, uh, you know, trying to communicate and woo, um, you know, kind of permanent partners. Hmm. Um, again, obviously contested, but an interesting um, sort of theory. Another idea I find really fascinating is that, um, you know, human babies don't really cling um, to their mothers the same mm-hmm. way that a lot of like primate um babies do and that having sometimes to have to set your baby down um, resulted in like baby talk and kind of cooing to your baby and finding these other ways to soothe them while your hands were occupied you know making dinner or whatever um, whatever ladies do yeah you know <laughs> carving um, bone flutes carving bone flutes exactly for your for your really cool um, ABBA style band <laughs> um, and so uh, there is this is definitely like a very unresolved kind of issue, um, but it's interesting to see how people have been trying to um, put it, you know, the archaeological record to use, as well as like, you know, in the case of the human voice, that's based off of looking at historical anatomical specimens and watching how our 
throat and skull like literally evolve to mm-hmm. give us the capacity for different kinds of sounds. Yeah. Um, Neanderthals uh, definitely play a really big role in this history because a lot of the time it seems like we're just trying to demean them. Um, when you read like about all of these flutes, it's always and and this proves that Neanderthals were not like creative enough to make their own flutes and that this is definitely a mark of like, you know, the human spirit here <laughs> in this place. Um, and and that even extends to the idea of our vocal range. Neanderthals um, had a very different like throat bone composition. Um, and so people have recently been working on trying to recreate the sounds that Neanderthals make. You can Google this um, and find these very funny videos of voice actors <laughs> being coached into a Neanderthal kind of physical position so that they can sort of mimic that. And then going super high-pitched, like, you would never think that a Neanderthal is screaming, like, you know, like, at this, like, almost dog whistle kind of an octave, (laughs) but that's exactly what they're doing. It's, like, very angry, and, um, you know, their shoulders, like, up to their ears, um, and then just this, like, really upsetting kind of baby-like whine (laughs) emerging um, from, uh, based off of these reconstructions we've done of their um, throats. This is just sort of, you know, what we're trying to piece together. And it sort of seems like if we, unless we get time machines sometime soon, like we'll never really know a lot of answers to these questions. But it is interesting, I thought, to just sort of put into context some of the more recent instruments mm. um, that we have developed. I found these to be really surprising. When do you guys think that the saxophone was developed? The saxophone? Adolf Sax developed that, right? My goodness. <laughs> so, no, I know his name, but I don't know when. I, I think he was German. So that makes me think that it predates, like, just the jazz era. So... But, but I wouldn't be surprised if it was, like, a 20th century instrument. Maybe 19th century, but not before then. Uh, I vote 19th century. Yeah, you guys are, like, musical detectives. <laughs> um, like, 1840, Adolf Sachs. Mm. Nailed it. Um, okay, what about a trumpet? Oh, though that's, you know, you got your heralds. So, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, I don't know. When was heraldry invented? What's that, like medieval? I think of like medieval castles, like a bunch right. of people outside with the long skinny I, I would say medieval-ish. Yeah, so this is really interesting. In like 1500 BC, this is sort of similar to like the laughing gas of people not really putting together all of the potential of mm. the device that they mm-hmm. have. In like at least as long ago as 1500 BC, the ancient Greeks and Egyptians were using trumpets in battle as sort of like a like a rallying cry or to like organize the troops. But it wasn't until the medieval period, really like in the 1300s, that people were like, "This is a musical instrument <laughs> that we can use in other contexts." Okay, so then here's my last one that you guys are just gonna make me feel like a fool. You'll probably get it down to the day. Um, when was the piano developed? Oh, right, because this is like a trick one because there's so much, quote, piano music that's from an era where pianos didn't actually exist yet. For like cla- clavichord and harpsichord and stuff? Yeah, I want to say that the piano was invented in like the 1800s, 1700, 1800s. Uh, 1800s. Uh, I mean, <laughs> Definitely if, not before then. If, I mean, if, if like... The if, last millennium. <laughs> Harpsichords and stuff don't count as pianos, then, or do they? I'm not considering that. I'm considering, like, you know, exactly what we would imagine. Yes, exactly. Pianoforte. That sounds very, like, little women-y, so I'm just going to say 1800s. So Bartolomeo Cristofori, um, an Italian uh, 
genius. Um, <laughs> he invented the, the piano as we know it today um, in 1700 um, or so thereabouts. So 1800, 1700, 1600. You know? <laughs> right there. I'm pretty glad that overall we're not using a lot of, of uh, you know, human bone-based instrumentation um, these days. Uh, but it was just really cool to sort of... Uh, piece together this puzzle that you know like hundreds of archaeologists and music nerds are, are working through about how we um did all these things that we do such great flute facts thank you uh we're gonna take a quick break and then we'll be back with some not flute facts it's really easy to get confused by all of the tech news flying around the internet on Last Week in Tech, the popular science tech team explains everything and tells you how all of these stories affect your daily life. New episodes post every Monday on Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, SoundCloud, and pretty much anywhere else you can listen to podcasts. We'll talk to you then. And we're back. And I'm going to talk about edible domestication. So uh, we had a story up this week about domesticated foxes, which everybody loves as evidenced by the long tail success of a popsi.com article called, Can I Have a Pet Fox? <laughs> um, I know what you people want and it's a pet fox. So this recent article was um, looking at a new study about this famous fox domestication experiment, which started in 1959 in the former Soviet Union. Uh, basically, this guy decided to start breeding the most docile and human-friendly foxes that he could find. Does this again and again, generation after generation. At this point, we're about 40 generations out, and they act like puppies, and it's mm. adorable. <laughs> They're, you know, fully domesticated. They love playing with humans. They're cuddly. They're not going to bite your face off. They've even developed these different coat patterns, floppier ears, and uh, like curly tails, which are totally unknown in wild foxes. That's something called domestication syndrome, as described by Charles Darwin, which is when you domesticate a mammal, it tends to develop like white patches, more infantile faces, and floppy ears. It we literally gets cuter? It literally gets cuter, even if you're not selecting for that. So with these foxes, you know, the way they domesticated them, uh, which is the way you domesticate anything, is that they just pick the ones that played best with humans, you know, best served the purposes they wanted them to serve um, and kept breeding for those traits. Uh, looks weren't supposed to have anything to do with it, but there is this connection we don't quite understand yet between docility and these kind of cute features. So maybe it's that, like, humans developed to find cute the traits that belonged to less harmful animals? Right, or there might be something that, like, you're you're more, because you're more likely to survive as a docile animal if you're adorable oh, yeah. to, like, <clears throat> other species. Like, the, we really don't understand a lot. In fact, this recent study was trying to look at um, dogs and, like, a bunch of different kinds of wolves, including the domesticated wolves, to try to pick out what gene types were changing as the domestication happened. And they did find some like promising leads, but it was still a very confusing mishmash of like what genes seem to change when you domesticate an animal. These foxes are a great example of the difference between domesticating an animal and taming one. Uh, because a lot of the foxes you can buy are tame, which really means nothing except that they're not a particularly aggressive baby fox. Like, right. if someone sells you a tame fox, it just means this particular baby fox 
probably will not bite your face off. Um, Emphasis on probably. Right. And you can <laughs> you can tame any animal, in theory, by just raising them to behave and follow human rules. Um, and that animal, you know, may be a loose cannon. Uh, you, you know, there have been cases of people with wild animals that they thought were tame as pets attacking them um, because those instincts are still there. Uh, or, you know, it's totally possible that that animal you tame will, you know, be chill for its entire life. But if that animal had a baby and was raised under a different set of rules, it would have totally lost all of the tameness because it is just behavioral conditioning. It has nothing to do with the, um, you know, genes of the animal. Domestication is when you do that taming generation after generation and specifically select for animals that are innately suited to your purposes. So that's like every litter of every generation, you're picking the ones that are best to keep breeding yes. according to your purposes. And then you, yes. if you just do that for a long enough time, you're actually starting to affect change in the popu- in your like micro population. Right. Kind of. okay. yeah, it's, it's, and that's the point where they start getting the curly, the floppy ears and everything? Yeah, exactly. Um, after many generations. Um, you know, that kind of um, underlying tenets of, of what kind of animal can be domesticated... Traditionally, it was, um, I'm pretty sure this came from Darwin. He said the animal needs to have a desire for comfort. They need to be easy to tend and they need to be useful and show a fondness for man. Um, in Jared Diamond's uh, book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, he actually expanded that to six criteria. Um, he said they cannot be picky eaters because they need to be able to survive on like whatever food the humans are able to provide for them. Um, they must reach maturity quickly relative to human lifespan because right. uh, if it takes you a long time to even raise and tame one generation, you're not going to bother to keep doing it. Um, they have to be able to breed in captivity, like unlike pandas, for example, <laughs> which have a, do a great job having sex in the wild. Terrible at doing it in zoos. Um, they must be docile by nature. They cannot have a strong tendency to panic and flee. And they usually need to conform to social hierarchy so that they can recognize a human as a master. Wow. Uh, cats are a notable exception. I was going to say, that, that doesn't sound familiar for cats. Right, How exactly. How long did it take for the 40 generations of these foxes to be bred? Like, was that one in one man's lifespan? So this was since 1959. Okay. Um, and they've just about hit, like, 40 now. Um so, yeah, foxes were, were great because they're closely related to dogs. You know, they're in the same genus. Um, you can find individuals that are quite tameable. Uh, so that, that's really what it takes. That brings me to my next question, which is whether we could domesticate any animal. And, of course, for all the reasons I've just outlined, we can't. There are animals that are simply, it would take too much work to wrestle that, like, those first generations. It would take too long um, so, like, maybe theoretically it's possible for any animal, but, like, gosh, would not be worth the trouble. Um, and one that comes up a lot is the question of whether we could domesticate zebras or why we haven't. Um, because horses have, like, their history of domestication is pretty ancient. Not as ancient as the dog. There seems to be something pretty special about dogs that they have, like, a lot of genetic plasticity and just happen to have a lot of traits that made them very, like, simpatico with humans. So it was kind of primed to happen uh but after uh, after dogs like you know horses are, are one of the older ones and 
you know, there were wild horses that people started to ride around Eurasia and, you know, blah, blah, blah. And the, the rest is history. We have some articles about it on popsi.com. Uh, so the, a lot of people ask, you know, why didn't the same thing happen on the African continent with zebras? The answer is that zebras are real nasty sense of <laughs> relative to wild horses even. And that's probably because the abundance of large natural predators there, like large, fast predators, um, you know, you have to imagine like what kinds of predators a horse in Eurasia was running away from versus like a cheetah. Mm-hmm. And so um, they had to become pretty like twitchy and fast animals. Um, I mean, a, a zebra's kick can break a lion's jaw. Whoa. And they have very powerful, like, ducking reflexes to dodge predators as well, so they're pretty difficult to lasso. Hmm. Um, and they are just temperamental. Um, they, <laughs> they don't want to hang out with humans at all. So they're an example of, you know, an animal where um, you would have a hard time wrangling them for long enough to produce enough generations to make a truly domesticated zebra. People have tamed zebras, but, you know, those are going to be, like, one-offs. And there was once a man who um, was pretty into the idea. His name was Lionel Walter Rothschild, second Baron Rothschild of Tring. His father was actually the first Jewish member of the House of Lords not to have previously converted to Christianity. Um, Seems like they were a pretty cool family. He was born in 1868 and loved zoology. Uh, Little Lionel, at the age of seven, declared that he would run a zoological museum. And uh, he started his first in a garden shed at the age of 10. He worked at the family bank but hated it. Uh, He seems like he was um, a real precious babby. He was 6'3", had some kind of speech impediment. Um, He was described as, quote, rolling around like a grand piano on casters because he had very dainty dainty feet, (laughs) even though he was so large. Wait, a grand piano on casters was the metaphor they chose? Yes. We have um, lost I our think facility this was from a, from a niece of his, perhaps. Um, so anyway, uh, Lionel, possibly my new love. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he started working at the family bank uh, around his 21st birthday, and he hated it. And his parents, who felt very guilty, I guess, also at the same time, um, gave him some land and built some cottages to house his books and insect collections. And then a much larger building behind it, they were like, here's your zoological museum. Now please go try to work at the bank. Um, he did that until he was 40. And when he, when he was, you know, 40, flirty, and thriving, as they say, he set out to finally go be a zoologist and, you know, just go find animal specimens. Fulfill his dreams. Um, one fun fact, he actually sold off his beloved bird collection to the Museum of Natural History in New York City for only $200,000, even though it was likely worth a couple million. Whoa. And they found out later it was to get fast cash to pay off one of his three angry mistresses. <laughs> Lionel never married. So the reason I bring up Lionel, other than all of that wonderful information I learned about him along the way, is that he strongly believed zebras could and should be tamed for riding. Um, so he had a bunch of them from his private zoo trained for carriage pulling. No word on how many they had to try to train, to actually get a few that would do it. But they did, you know, again, you can tame a zebra. Uh, They're just not domesticated. Um, 
and he once drove four of them uh, through Piccadilly to Buckingham Palace. And I have a picture of that, which we'll also have on popside.com. Ooh, <laughs> that's a good look. There I, he is. I, I, I guess I'm what he wanted it. Yeah. 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 It's so stylish. So, and he also had a single zebra cart to show off at home. <laughs> a little less ostentatious than the four zebras. And he, he also liked riding around on his giant tortoise with like lettuce in front of it as um, to guide it. Now, which how is fast rude. could he don't, go? Don't sit on a giant tortoise. That's very rude, especially if you're a six foot three man, no matter how dainty your feet are. <laughs> but he, he really like wanted to share his love of these, uh, these megafauna. And he, he didn't understand why we weren't like introducing them more into our our daily lives um so <laughs> really interesting guy and just loved loved animals so much animals are uh are fascinating domestication fascinating and um it's really interesting to think about how much pressure we've put on specific species to turn them into uh animals that are useful to us um and i find it heartening to be reminded that there are many animals that we have absolutely no hope of of doing so, too. Long live the zebra. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so anyway, what was the weirdest thing we learned this week? Laughing yes. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm with you on that one. Um, the Regency era, Reefer Madness, laughing gas is pretty delightful. Okay. I, I kind of <laughs> like... I kind of like Lionel riding around on the tortoise, but if, if you're going to hand it to me, I'll take it. competition, but yeah. laughing gas is amazing, and uh, and don't do it recreationally, kids. <laughs> There's a lot of stuff in this episode that you should not attempt. Yeah. yeah. Like Opium. Make, making a flute out of someone's femur. Don't do that. Ill-advised. Uh, laughing gas recreationally. Mm-mm, not even once. Uh, gateway drug. And yeah, domesticating a zebra. Also rude. <laughs> weirdest thing don't try this at home <laughs> the weirdest thing i learned this week is a popular science podcast subscribe on apple podcasts google play music soundcloud or wherever you're listening right now and if you like the show please rate and review us on itunes it helps other weirdos find the show you can buy our merch including weirdest thing t-shirts tote bags and mugs at popsci.threadless.com our theme music was produced by billy cadden our editor is jason letterman if you have questions, suggestions, or weird stories to share, tweet us at weirdest underscore thing. Thanks for listening, weirdos. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.